Our scripture this week is from Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them at any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then... Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. My kids grew up on Veggie Tales. Do you know Veggie Tales, right? Children's videos of computer-generated vegetables that teach spiritual principles. Well, VeggieTales was created by a man named Phil Vischer. In fact, he did a lot of the voices, design, all of that. And Phil Vischer talks about the fact that he grew up in a Christian world where there was tremendous pressure to have impact. And so as he created these VeggieTales, he tried to get bigger and bigger and bigger and enter into a bigger impact in the world to the point where eventually it all collapsed on itself. And he ended up going bankrupt, losing his company, and being driven from his own company that he designed. And he says this that happened to him after that period as he walked away from his company. It says, he writes, The more I dove into Scripture, the more I realized I had been deluded. I had grown up drinking a dangerous cocktail, a mix of the gospel, the Protestant work ethic, and the American dream. The Savior I followed seemed, in hindsight, equal parts Jesus, Ben Franklin, and Henry Ford. (laughs) My eternal value was rooted in what I could accomplish. Let me say that again. My eternal value was rooted in what I could accomplish. I think many of us are confused or have a wrong view of what The Christian life is really meant to be. I can say that because I have struggled over the years to wrestle with what God is really looking for. What does he really want from us at bottom? What should be central to our walks with him? Does he want us to have a huge impact for him? You know, if that's the case, we're all kind of in trouble, aren't we? (laughs) Or is God there to bless us? And so 
primarily he's a provider. And so our job is to figure out how to get God to give us what we really want so that life is full of his blessings. Many approach God that way. Or does God just give us principles, guidelines, that if we just figure out the guidelines, study his word enough, get the principles, and we live out those principles, then, you know, life works pretty well. The problem with all of these approaches is you don't really need God. It's us living it out on our own, ultimately. Well, in our passage today, there are different people who demonstrate four different approaches to God all of which are very common, all of which I have lived out in my walks with God over the years as I've sought to figure out what is God really asking of us. But only one of the four is set apart by Jesus to say this is what God's looking for. This is what he delights in. Making this central in your life is what makes you famous in God's sight. This morning, may each of us evaluate, how am I approaching God, really? And may we catch a fresh vision of what our relationship with God really, really can be and is meant to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for giving us your word that doesn't just give us principles to live by, but it gives us yourself. It reveals your heart for us and for the world, and it allows us to get to know you for who you really are. Lord, as we approach this passage, may we catch a vision of a deeper relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first group I want to look at is the chief priests and the scribes, verses 1 and 2, chapter 14 of Mark. Now, the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him, Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Now, let's set the context here. This is the Passover feast. This is the greatest feast in Israel's history. The whole point of the Passover was to celebrate during that whole week The fact that God had led Israel out of slavery in Egypt through the blood of the lambs put on the lintels of the doorposts and the firstborn of Egypt were killed, but the Jews were spared. And then God called them out of that place of slavery and led them to the promised land. And the Passover celebrates this amazing redemption. It was a really important time in the worship of Israel. And the leaders of Israel were the chief priests and the scribes meant to lead their people into a deeper worship of God. But what are they focusing on? (laughs) How do we kill Jesus? Rather than leading their people in worship, they had to get rid of Jesus. These chief priests who were the primary leaders, they had the primary power over the temple and the Jewish faith. But it seems that their focus was much more on, we need to stay in control. We need to maintain our power over the people and over the temple. You see, their approach was this. My faith in God is mainly about figuring out the rules so I can maintain my position in the religious world. The scribes, they were the experts in the Torah. 
in the law, in the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, and the rabbinical writings that were the commentaries on the Torah. They studied it forwards and back and applied it to the people. And as we've talked about before, part of what they did is they created and tried to apply all these rules that the rabbis had come up with. For example, God says in the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. One rule, right? Well, the Jews had made over 600 rules to make sure that nobody violated that, that that somehow we can figure out if we just follow all these principles and do all the right things, then we won't actually violate that one law of God. Well, they did things like this. Some of the rules were, for example, a woman could not look in a mirror on the Sabbath because that was could cause her to see a hair on her chin that she would be tempted to pluck. And if she plucked the hair, that would be work. So a woman could not look in a mirror on the Sabbath. You could spit on a rock because that wasn't work, but you could not spit in the dirt because if you spit in the dirt, you were making mud and mud can be used for building and therefore that was illegal. And, you know, just the absurdity goes on and on. But their hearts were, okay, we have to figure out the rules and if we figure out the principles and the rules for living, then we'll be okay. In the book, with by Sky Jathani. I'll be reading several passages from it today because he just gives a good description of some of these different characters we'll be looking at today. And he describes this kind of approach to God this way. When the Bible is primarily seen as a depository of divine principles for life, it fundamentally changes the way we engage God and his word. Rather than a vehicle for knowing God and fostering our communion with him, we search the scriptures for applicable principles that we may employ to control our world and our life. And then listen carefully how he, what he says. He says, this is not Christianity. This is Christian deism. In other words, we actually replace a relationship with God for a relationship with the Bible. If one has a repair manual... Why bother with the expense of the mechanic? So it's challenging as he describes this approach to God that it's all about principles. And so in the end, you don't really need God. Do we sometimes approach God this way? Well, I certainly have. (laughs) It's so easy to do because we want life to work. and, And the Bible is full of wisdom. It's wonderful. It's brilliant. But when that becomes first priority to find the principles to try to figure out life and make life work, then you leave God out of the picture and you end up in trouble. You see, the Bible's primarily a revelation of who God is so that we can get to know him and his character and his love for us and his love for the world. And we can enter into a deeper relationship with him. What's the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that's lived out in activity, yes, but it's primarily a relationship with God. And we are called to foster that relationship with him more and more deeply. And note the results when you try to live this way, living by principles. Look at what happens with the chief priests and the scribes. They become very critical of others who aren't measuring up, right? (laughs) 
you're not doing it right. And especially of Jesus, who's messing with the system because principles are there so you can control your life and make life work. And Jesus is messing with the whole system and giving them an entire different, entirely different perspective of God. So scribes and chief priests are unable to enter into real worship at this Passover time. They're consumed with fear, fear of losing control, fear of what other people are going to think and all of that. I think many of us have lived this way. I certainly have, and I still struggle with it off and on. And, uh, but I, uh, a vivid time was when I had been a Christian about four years, and I had learned lots of principles in my college groups I was in, and I worked real hard to live those out. And yes, I spent time with God. You know, I did my required quiet time and my few minutes of prayer. And, but it was to check it off the list primarily. And after four years, the principles didn't work anymore. And I became really frustrated with God. What's wrong with Christianity? It doesn't work. Well, I had a wrong approach to God. Are you living a life today like the chief priests and the scribes? A life based on... God's principles, but ending up in frustration and fear when you sense yourself losing control, it doesn't always work. Then I want to say to you, if that's you, there's more. Oh, there's more. God wants so much more for you. He wants you to to have an intimacy with him that delights your very heart. The second group is the sum in verses 4 and 5. Let me read those verses again. So the woman has broken this jar of, of nard and poured it over Jesus' head. We'll get back to that in a bit. But it says, some, verse 4, some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. 300 denarii is about a year's Wages. So in our day, that would be approximately maybe thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. I mean, it was a lot. And it says, when they saw her do this, they were indignant. Now, to be indignant really describes this attitude of, you have done something wrong and it makes me angry. Because I know what's right. <laughs> and you've done this wrong. They were indignant at this woman who wasted all this money. And they're frustrated with her. And it says that they that they rebuked her. But that word for rebuke is literally they snorted at her. (laughs) They were so angry. You're a bad person for doing this, for wasting all this money. Now, what's going on in their thinking that they would be so hard on her in this? Well, it seems that they're perspective of the Christian life is it can be described as life for God. We need to give our lives away for God. It's what we do for God that's important. I need to live my life fully for Him and do as much as I can. God calls us into missional living. So I need to give my life away in service to God and His people and this world. Sky Jothani again describes this this way. Cutting open this perspective would reveal a mission at the core, some great goal understood to be initiated by God and carried forward by us 
defines everything and everyone. An individual is either on the mission, the object of the mission, an obstacle to the mission, an aid to the mission, or a fat Christian who should be on the mission. (laughs) And that's why they're so angry. Hey, we could have done something good here. We could have really helped the poor. And you've wasted all this money that we could have used for good. What a waste. The millennials have been studied at length. The millennials are that category in the 20s and early 30s that kind of grew up through the, over the millennium. And it, um, one of the things that's been studied and noted about the millennials is they have a great heart for service. They want to be involved in churches. They want to be involved in situations where they can make a difference where they can be socially active, where they can care for the poor, where they can go out and serve God with their hands and their feet. I commend them for this. We are called by God to use our spiritual gifts to make a difference in the world and to bless others. But there is a danger when you have that perspective. You see, the danger is making your activity for God first in your spiritual life. It's meant to be an outgrowth of a deep intimacy and a love for Jesus that's growing deeper and deeper and your roots in Jesus are going deeper. And out of that, then you serve, but you're able to serve in his power and his strength. But when you see life as for God, I just got to go out and do things for God. You end up being like the sum here who judge others who aren't as missional as you, who aren't as active, who aren't doing as much. And again, you leave God out of the picture. Now, it's so easy to fall into this, isn't it? It's what I do for God that's most important. Periodically, I go through this struggle of, oh, I'm just not doing enough for God. It's this pressure that somehow I should be doing more. But see, I think that's this wrong attitude that the most important thing is what I do for God. Again, the greatest commandment is to love him. That is what's most important. And unless that is central, building a relationship with God, getting closer to him, knowing him, loving him, seeing him as he really is, and worshiping him for it on our own, corporately, whatever, then we're missing out. We're making secondary things first. Our relationship with God must be first. Are you feeling pressured to do more for God, to make an impact? And do you feel guilty because you feel like I'm not doing enough for God? Well, maybe you've fallen into this life for God, this pressure perspective. And I want to say to you, there is more. There is an intimacy and a delight in God where you begin to see him as your very life that brings a depth of joy that is greater than all your circumstances. There is more. The third group is represented by Judas, verses 10 and 11. Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money, and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on in Judas's mind, but most scholars think, Judas was ticked at Jesus. You see, Jesus had come 
And it was clear he was Messiah and he'd had the triumphal entry. And now was his opportunity to raise up an army, throw out the Romans and make everything better for everybody, especially for Judas. (laughs) But Jesus didn't do that. In fact, he kept talking about in a few days, I will die. I will give my life away. He washed feet. He did all these things. And Judas is angry. Why? Because his Approach to God is this, life from God. In other words, what's important is getting God's blessings for God is there to make my life better. And if he doesn't come through for me, then I guess I'll do what I can to get what I want out of life. And what does Judas do? He says, if you're not going to do that, Jesus, then I'll betray you for 30 pieces of silver because at least I'll get money out of it. See, it's easy to fall into this approach to God where it's much more about trying to get blessings from God rather than knowing him and having him be our greatest blessing. Anybody identify with Judas? I do at times, definitely. We are Judases, trying to get God to do this or that in our lives to make us more comfortable or blessed. And we pray for things to happen, to make our lives more comfortable or to fix certain things. And then when God doesn't come through, we get angry. Aren't we a lot like Judas? Again, Sky Jathani describes it this way. Religion becomes a means to an end. A more spiritual method of achieving our desires, whether they are the products of advertising or of nobler sources. Those who relate to God primarily as the almighty provider hold a decidedly one-dimensional understanding of him. God gives and we receive. (laughs) Now, it's certainly not wrong to ask God for things. He invites us to ask. But when that becomes the core of how we relate to him, we're placing ourselves at the center and expecting God to orbit around us. God is meant to be central. And we are to orbit around him. We are insisting at that point that the creator submit to the creature. We're seeking to control God in order to achieve our objectives. We are, once again, repeating the rebellion of Eden. We're repeating the rebellion of Eden. God, you're there to meet my needs. What's the danger of this approach to God that, again, I think we all fall into at times? Well, the danger is that eventually... When God doesn't come through for us like he didn't for Judas, we become angry at God. And we may keep going to church. We may still be involved in somehow ministry and all, but but our hearts are hard toward a God that doesn't come through for us like we want. As I was thinking about this, I thought of two of my closest friends. One I went to seminary with, a great friend. We spent so much time together, and he started to have an affair. He had four little girls at home. He started to have an affair, and I talked to him, and I said, what are you doing? You know better than this. You know what's going on? And he said, I feel such passion with this other woman that I've never felt anywhere else in my life, with God or any place else. And so he walked away from his family, his daughters, his wife, for this other woman. And I thought, you know, he had a perspective of, you know, God, you're there to make my life feel good. I want to feel good. This feels good. So I don't care what you think. I'm going to make life work my way. 
It's easy to fall into that perspective, isn't it? Has this been your approach to God? Seeing him as a dispenser of blessings that if I just pray hard enough or if I just figure out how to get God to give me blessings, then life will work. And then when he doesn't, you get frustrated and you give up praying. What's the use of praying? God doesn't answer prayer. Then I would suggest to you, you're looking at your relationship with God through the wrong lenses. You are like Judas. And again, I'm not pointing fingers. I've been there. And I get there still at times. I want to say to you, there's more. It's not about God's blessing. God is our inheritance. He is our life. And the closer we learn to grow to him and see him for who he is, the more we experience the life we all were created for and we long for deep in our hearts. Well, the fourth category, the fourth group, is represented by this woman who breaks this jar. Let me begin with verse 3. When he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Now, I want you to notice some things about this woman. For one, Mark doesn't name her. Now, John may, if it's the parallel passage, possibly, we aren't sure, But he names her as Mary, but Mark doesn't name her. And it's a woman who invades this dinner party. She's unnamed. She's a woman. In the world's eyes of that day, she was very insignificant, of little value. And notice how they all treat her as of little value. She's rejected by others for her extravagant, wasteful, Actions. The religious people around her are angry at her and reject her. But let's talk about what she actually does. She takes an alabaster jar of pure nard. It's worth, like I said, maybe thirty or forty thousand dollars in today's money. I mean, it was expensive. And when she takes this jar, she breaks it. Now I don't know about you, but I go, you know, she could have just pulled the cork. <laughs> And dropped a few drops, and it would have been really wonderful and significant and fragrant. She breaks it, breaks the top off, and then pours it on his head as if to say, I want to make sure that I don't save any of it, that there's nothing that I can hold back because I want Jesus to have it all. I want to be 100% devoted to him. Now, what was this jar of nard that she had? Why did she have this? Probably, most scholars think it was maybe a couple things. One is, it was probably a family inheritance. This was their security for the future. This was her 401k, and she breaks it. And some think that this was something she was saving for her dowry. When she got married, she'd be able to have a good husband because she had such a valuable dowry. And so she breaks it and pours it out and gives up her security for the future, whether it was in a husband or in the money, because she is so delighted and overwhelmed by the awesomeness of the mercy of God that she's experienced from the hand of Jesus that she cannot hold anything back. (laughs) She has to give all. 
Verse 8 says, as Jesus is talking about her, she has done what she could. Literally, it's what she had, she did. So that suggests to me she didn't have any more. I mean, this is it. What she had, she did. What she, she brought her most valuable, expensive thing. There wasn't another jar. <laughs> she gave it all. Foolish, wasteful, unwise. Aren't we supposed to save for the future? You know, there's some truth to all that, absolutely. But what she had, she did. And notice what Jesus says in verse 6. Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed. NIV says a beautiful thing to me. Jesus says what she did was beautiful. It brought beauty to the world. It delighted his heart. Jesus was excited about what she did here. And essentially what Jesus is saying is this. As the some get all upset, oh, this could have been sold and given to the poor. Jesus essentially is saying this. Caring for the poor is a good thing. But worshiping me with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, learning to live an unrestrained worship towards me is far more important than caring for the poor or doing good works of any kind. I, I've been uh, kind of on this journey reading the Koran lately <laughs> because I thought, you know, we're getting more Muslims in this area and obviously so much is happening in the world and I wanted to see what it had to say. And it's very interesting to me reading it because most of the Koran, you just see this repeated over and over again as you need to give alms. You need to do good works. You need to pray regularly because if you don't, you're going to burn in hell forever. And even if you do good works, you're going to, your works are going to be on a scale. And who knows if you've done enough to make it to heaven. And then when it describes heaven, it doesn't, it, it's all about sitting on a nice couch, eating really good fruit having a bunch of virgins, all this kind of sensual stuff, there is nothing about having an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is so different than anything else because the whole point is we can have a personal relationship with God. It's not about what we do. It's not about giving more alms. It's not about being busy for God. It's about knowing Him first and foremost and the woman in this story is showing us that. When you devote yourself to worshiping Jesus, your actions become far more impactful and significant than you ever realize. Verse 8, she's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. I don't think this woman knew that that's what she was doing. But Jesus says this action of worshiping me is imbued with greater significance. She's preparing my body for burial. When I first came to Cole, I was the first one into the office every day, last one to leave, because I had a lot to do. I had to be busy for God. And yeah, I'd read the Bible and pray, but it was short, brief. And, but I have come to see more and more that my ministry begins and ends and is 
and is supported and founded on a relationship with him. And now I spend much more time just being with him and reading his word and asking him to speak and hearing from him and praying for all of you and, and watching God work. And you know what? I think my ministry is more impactful than it's ever been. So I think he's trying to tell us something. <laughs> we tend to think... I don't have time to spend 20 minutes, half hour with God. Oh, brothers and sisters, we don't have time not to. That's got to be the foundation of our lives, of everything we do. Yeah, it feels extravagant, right? Oh, it's wasteful. Time is money. Yeah, it is extravagant to spend time with God, but believe me, God honors it and delights in it. Who is famous in God's kingdom? Verse 9, it's really interesting to me. Truly I say to you, whoever, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Jesus says he ties the gospel into what she's done. And he's saying, you know what the essence of the gospel is? It's this kind of relationship with God. It's this kind of worship. It's this kind of extravagant worship of me, he says. That's who's famous in God's kingdom, not the chief priests, not the scribes, not all of those people who have great Bible knowledge or any of that. It's those whose hearts are most given over to worshiping him. And notice that her worship was costly, hugely costly. It was extravagant. It was unrestrained. She held nothing back. It was risky. She risked and experienced the ridicule of the religious world around her. She risked rejection and risked her reputation and risked her own future. And it wasn't like she was showing off. Look what a godly woman I am. No, she was so devoted to Jesus. She didn't care what anybody else thought. So this woman shows us that the one in whom God delights, who's famous in the kingdom, is the one who sees the awesomeness of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, has experienced it and worships him for who he is. God wants us to have an intimate relationship with him. The story is told of Billy Graham, who was going to be on the Today Show in 1982. And... So the person who was coordinating all this for the Today Show went up to his assistant and said, we've got a room set aside for Billy Graham so he can pray before he goes on the air. And Billy Graham's assistant said, oh, Billy Graham doesn't need that room. And the assistant said, whoa, wait a minute. A Christian leader is not going to pray? And his assistant said, Billy Graham was praying when he got up this morning. He prayed through breakfast. He prayed on the way over here. He'll be praying through the entire interview. He doesn't need a room to pray. Don't you want that kind of relationship with God where it's just an intimacy with him and a delight of being with him? One more story about Mother Teresa. In the 1980s, Dan Rather interviewed Mother Teresa. The CBS anchor asked her, when you pray, what do you say to God? I don't say anything, 
She replied, I listen. (laughs) Okay, rather said, taking another shot at it. When God speaks to you, then what does he say? He doesn't say anything. He listens. (laughs) Rather didn't know how to continue. (laughs) He was baffled. Mother Teresa said, if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. See, she's describing one of my favorite verses, Zephaniah 317. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with shouts of joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will exult over you with joy. I love that picture of being quiet in his love, that that God, when you have that kind of intimacy, you don't have to say anything. You're just together. And the joy of being with one another is your greatest joy in life. Brothers and sisters, that's what delights the heart of God. That's what this woman pictures for us. That's what God offers us. So I want to give a, a final challenge here. I want to read one last comment here that Sky Jathani talks about what the church then is all about. If this is what really God wants. He says, the primary purpose of our worship gatherings then and of our preaching and of our programs should be to present a ravishing vision of Jesus Christ. When people come to see who he is and what God is like, Treasuring him becomes the natural outcome. Let me say that we work hard on the Sunday morning service so that you will gain a ravishing vision of who he is. From the beginning song to the prayers to all that happens all the way through. Adrienne with input from Rod and myself, but Adrienne does the primary work. She brings us into God's presence first as we share songs about God and we move towards singing directly to God, which prepares us to speak to God in the prayer time and prepares us to hear from God. And let me just say, when you wander in late, I know I'm stepping on some toes, When you wander in late and miss part of the worship time, you're not only missing out on the great things we do at the beginning of the service, like child dedications and world vision updates and all kinds of good things that we have, but you are missing out on the opportunity to catch a greater ravishing vision of who Jesus is. Let me encourage you. If you need to chat with your friends... Show up at least 10 minutes early, chat with them out there, but be in your seat at 9 or 1045, whichever service you're at, and be ready to catch a vision from God. Everyone else thought this woman was a mistake. And what she did was wrong and wasteful. Jesus calls it a beautiful thing. May we learn to delight in Jesus and to walk with him in a way that God would look at us and say, oh, oh, that 
that time when you worshipped me from the heart, not just here Sunday morning, during your day, wherever you are, but, but you're unrestrained and you're just delight in who God is, and God would look at you and say, oh, that was a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this woman who you delighted in, who you saw as famous, whose actions are forever connected to the gospel. May our worship of you go deeper. May our intimacy with you go deeper. May we catch a ravishing vision of you in a way that would delight your heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.